This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And Jason, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's good to be back. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. We're gonna, you know, you know, talk a lot about compliance on this show and compliance with regard to schedule contracting, but there are also just a number of interesting things going on in the government contracts world that that with that I'd like to get your insights and thoughts about. And sure, I guess the the first one I wanted to talk to you is there's a, a couple I guess bid protests with regard to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, MSPV uh, 2.0 procurement. Um, yes, those you know they're they're ongoing right now. They're at the federal court of claims, if I understand correctly. And um, there's can, can you talk? And there's some interesting it's, interesting developments. Can you talk first of all? Give a sense of what the protests are about and sure um, what the issues are and why it's so interesting because it's it is an interesting situation. It is it is it is interesting and you know in, in the time that I've been doing this, Roger, I've actually been trying to think of you know an analog you know in, in my career as to something exactly like this, and it's difficult for me to to think of some uh, you know pro, a series of pro of, of protests that is quite like this and a, you know, procurement uh, issue that, you know, an issue that's quite like this. So, you know, the background is, you know, that, you know, the, the VA had actually moved to MPSV 2.0 just fairly recently, I believe it was what, just, just last year, they had awarded those contracts. Uh, And not long after that, uh, the VA announced that they were going to be moving all of that prime vendor uh, 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 contracting, they're going to move it from the VA over to the Defense Logistics Agency, uh, DLA. Uh, and so those, you know, the, these contract vehicles that they had just awarded, uh, you know, and, and had, you know, with potential value of billions of dollars, uh, were about to become uh, uh, not quite as valuable <laughs> as, as before uh, with this move uh, to an entirely you know, new uh, contract vehicle over at DLA. So that prompted uh, a couple of interested uh, bidders in all of this, uh, Concordance and Medline, to file separate protests uh, at the Court of Federal Claims, uh, which were then consolidated which means, you know, they were, they were put into one case. So, you know, the, the, these two separate cases were filed and then they were merged into one uh, because the issues, you know, the, the fundamental issue in, in both of the protests, uh, you know, Medline and Concordance are somewhat differently situated. One has a existing uh, contract with VA, one does not, but they're both, uh, you know, upset about this move over to, uh, to DLA. Uh, so that's kind of the, the principal, uh, you know, ground of complaint for, for both protesters. So they, they filed there, the court, uh, uh, as I said, moved them into a single case. 
Um, and then, you know, when you're at the Court of Federal Claims, of course, the government's represented by the Justice Department, but, you know, the agency lawyers remain uh, deeply involved. So, uh, and, you know, for those, for listeners who are, you know, not familiar with the bid protest process, you know, you, you, you file at the court, uh, those, those actions normally move fairly quickly. And, and, and this case is uh, assigned to Judge Tapp who's a fairly recent appointee to the uh, Court of Federal Claims. He's not been on the bench at the court for very long, and he has been, been moving the case quite quickly. Um, and the, the, fa- the most recent developments and what is so fascinating, um, and there's been all kinds of, you know, just, just allegations uh, that have been made in those protests, allegations, you know, and this apparently is based upon some documents that the protesters got uh, through I don't, either through the court process or otherwise internal agency documents where there have been concerns expressed in within the government uh, about this entire move from the VA uh, contracts over to the DLA and there was a and some internal communication where there was a question raised about the ethics of doing this you know moving you know the uh, you know one of the protesters contentions a kind of a basic one is you know that this this recent procurement the VA ran feels a bit like almost a bait and switch we went through this we got the you know we got the contract but meanwhile internal to the VA it sounds like there was already discussions about moving to this new vehicle um, so and it, it sounds like you know there's at least one agency document where there is a question raised about the ethics of doing that which got a lot of airtime and some of the filings that the protesters have made at the court. So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the government, just, just a couple of weeks ago, the government went to the court and said, okay, court, uh, we've looked at these allegations. We're taking them very seriously. This is, you know, this is workmaster paraphrase. This is not, you know, quotations from the government's filing, but we've taken a clo- we're taking a close look at this. We want you court to rem- stop all the proceedings remand the matter, you know, send it back to the agencies for further consideration. We need to think more about this. And because, you know, as we think about it, we might end up just jettisoning this whole approach. And so it would render this whole protest academic. And so, you know, let us do that. And, you know, Roger, my, my view would be that, uh, you know, 99 out of 100 judges uh, would see something like that and say, uh, certainly in an ordinary protest context, they say, okay, yeah, well, 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 yeah, we don't want to decide an issue that we might not have to decide. And so, yeah, right. you agencies, you know, take it back. You tell us you're going to think about it. So go take it back. And, and the interesting thing, uh, the, uh, the protesters, Medline and Concordance, both came along and said, well, you know, so long as the agencies think about issues A, B, C, and D uh, as part of this relook at what they're doing, you know, we're okay uh, with a remand. Uh, but just just last Thursday, uh, the court uh, said no, uh, and the court said no. We're gonna we're gonna keep proceeding uh, to assess the uh, 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 merits of the protesters' arguments. Uh, and in the order of the court issued, it, it was just a short order. It was one paragraph. Uh, the court said, you know, more to follow. We're going to issue an opinion, which we have not yet seen. Uh, explaining the basis for the court's decision. But they said, you know, we're, we do not consider the government to have shown substantial and legitimate reason for the remand. And so we're going to keep uh, proceeding, uh, which is just quite a, quite a development. So 
Yeah, it's akin to taking corrective action for all intents and purposes, right? And you had both of the protesters on board, you know, subject to certain conditions and I, which I think were relatively reasonable. It's like, you'll consider what makes sense in the context of things or so, you know, right. 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 Um, so, I mean, what, uh, what's the practical impact here? I, I, I mean, uh, w- could you see a decision issued that would basically set the parameters for any future VA, you know, determination one way or the other, or. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of any reason for the judge to hold on to the case if he's not going to do that. Right. You know, I mean, the, the judge has to be thinking he's headed in the, in a direction of giving, you know, issuing, you know, ultimately he'll issue an injunction. Uh, you know, if the case goes all the way to the end here, he'll, he'll issue an injunction directing the agencies to do X, you know, whatever X, Y, and Z are. And, you know, presumably if where he was headed was, you know, telling the agencies to do the same thing that the agencies were all already volunteering to do, presumably he would, he would have said, okay, go ahead and, you know, get back to me later. So Mm -hmm. it presumably he has to be thinking of doing something, you know, more, uh, uh, you know, uh, prescriptive. (laughs) Oh, quite, oh, quite well, uh, definitely prescriptive. And he, he must not be getting a warm and fuzzy feeling that the government, that he trusts the government to do, they trust the agencies to do what's right on their own, which again is highly, highly unusual. I mean, this is not what most, judges would do uh in this situation however you know this is an un- as i said as i started said at the beginning this is a very unusual uh protest so um you know uh, uh it's yeah, it's, it's kind of it's interesting too from a sort of management government discretion perspective versus you know the, you know i guess the judge's you know authority or discretion right and a lot of this i mean at the end of the day if the government is saying, you know, you have some points here, we want to take another look at it, you know, and figure out the right way forward, it could mean, you know, going back and rethinking and going forward with our current contracts, it could mean rethinking the timeline for moving to the DLA to later, you know, to, you know, with the original timeline was going to was much a, a longer, you know, glide path several years versus, you know, relatively more recent, um, you know, you know, timeline of a year or so. I think that had a lot to do with, you know, the reaction of many yeah. in industry, but, yeah. um, but that just that, you know, to me, I'm as a former government employee, I'm trying to like assess, okay, well, wait a second. At the end of the day, the government's got to figure out what it's going to do. And, and if, if they're willing to, willing to um, um, take some, take steps to address, um, you know, the issues in the protest. I just, I've never seen anything quite like I, it. I, 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 I never have. I, I can't, I can't think of any, I, like I said, I can't think of something like this that I've run across either. And it, it is, uh, you know, the judges or, and this opinion is going to, you know, when it issues here is going to be absolutely fascinating reading because, you know, it, it, it cuts across. It's not just, you know, I mean, cause you know, when you're thinking about choice of contract vehicle and, you know, how an agency goes about procuring what it wants and determining its need, 
you know, agencies typically have lots and lots and lots of discretion over that kind of stuff. Right. right. So, you know, when it's, when it, when it comes to, when you're running into a judge here uh, who is you know, demonstrating he's got, he, it's interesting. He seems to have more sympathy for the protesters arguments than they themselves have. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, they have a judge that's kind of taking that active a look uh, at this, you know, raises questions about, you know, other, you know, protest protests down the road that maybe the facts aren't quite like this. I, I, I would have to assume, Roger, a huge factor here is the award of 2.0 and then the quick change. So, you know, so soon thereafter, I have to assume that when we see this opinion, I would think that's what we're going to see a lot about. It's it's right. and it's that notion of like you did, went to all this effort, you got all those people, all these bidders in, they spent a lot of BMP costs, and then you did what to them? I I I I think my hunch is that's what we're gonna right. we're gonna right. see some of that in this opinion. Yeah, and it could be almost be a declaratory judgment or sense. <laughs> you can do this, but not that. I mean, I mean, it's going to create the guide, you know, well, the guide path or the <laughs> you know or the. You know the the road signs for where you could go, well, where the VA can go forward. I and I so. will go out on a limb. Yeah, I'll, I will go out on a limb, and I will say, no matter you know, if this case goes to a decision like that, where we have an injunction, I will, I will, you know, as close to guarantee, which lawyers don't ever like to guarantee anything, but I will as close to guarantee there will be an appeal by the government. Yeah. You know, because I, I was, because because the 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 uh, impact. Uh, of this decision could, you know, go far beyond this right, particular this, protest. Right. right. I was getting, you answered, you answered my last question before I even got to ask it. So uh, well, well done, Jason. And we're Thank up you. on the break. So when we come back, we're going to look at a couple of more issues and then eventually turn to some compliance and schedules related, um, you know, tips from Jason. Uh, when we come back though, we'll talk a little bit about you know, the, uh, you know, Afghanistan and the um, uh, drawdown in terms of, you know, the exit exit there and what it means for government contractors. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And we just did an exhaustive discussion of uh, the MSPV protest and, yes. uh, and sort of, you know, w- with a focus really on the judge's um, um, way forward and, and the authority or not to be able to, to, to address, you know, the situation where the government's asked for remand. Um, now let's turn to some, I think it's, 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 it's also, you know, logistics in a certain sense, right? It but we're sure talking is. about, uh, the impact of the withdrawal from Afghanistan on government contractors. I know you've been, you know, especially focused on this, Jason. Can, so first, just talk about the context of it and what what you what you're seeing. Well, I mean, as you know, as I'm sure the listeners here know, I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for, you know, almost 20 years now. It's unbelievable, uh, which is which has been almost the you know the entirety of my career in government contracts. We've been we've been in Afghanistan. And, uh, the, you know, that the president has announced that we will be out uh, by the 11th of September. So, you know, what that has done and what we are seeing uh, is, you know, drawing down a, you know, a military operation on the other side of the globe uh, uh, has a tremendous impact on, you know, contractors who support the military. 
So, you know, what we are, you know, because we have a lot of bait, we've had bases in Afghanistan that required support. Um, uh, so what we are seeing, and we saw this at the end of the Iraq war, uh, but of course, Iraq, Iraq tapered uh, a bit more uh, than this. This is, this is an accelerated uh, time, uh, time schedule. So what we're seeing, of course, are you know, terminations. Um, uh, that's going to be, a, you know, if, if, if for those who uh, are with companies that uh, support the military overseas, you know, if you haven't been through a termination for convenience yet uh, before, you, you probably can be expecting one to come up. And, you know, those, you know, the government, you know, this is one of the things, of course, that sets government contracts apart from most, you know, commercial contracts is the government's ability uh, to terminate a contract for its convenience. Uh, and of course, the government's going to rely on that right uh, here. And we're seeing that with, um, you know, Roger, we, you know, you know, I talk a lot about commercial item contracts. Well, a lot of the contracts supporting the military, even overseas, those are commercial item contracts, which means you're dealing with the commercial item termination provision, which is different than, you know, if you're a traditional government contractor, you're used to the gov- to the termination provisions that, you know, they're in, you know, the, there's a part 49 is all about terminations and you have the standard, you know, non-commercial termination for convenience clause, which, you know, if you have a fixed price contract, converts it to your, your cover, your cost, da, 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 da. Well, if you're in a commercial item scenario, all of that's kind of out, the, all of that's out the window. Uh, and especially if you're a commercial item contractor in Afghanistan, uh, you know, where you really have never had experience uh, with a termination of a federal government contract, you know, that can raise that can raise a lot of a lot of thorny issues. So, so how, how would how would folks I mean, we'll just talk a bit more about the mechanics of the termination in the commercial item what people sure. would have to be think about. All right. So, it dep- you know, so under the commercial item. Uh, termination provision, which you, you pull out your FAR 52.212-4, subsection L, go read it. The It entitles the contractor to a percentage, essentially a percentage completion. You know, So you have to determine, okay, what was the price of the contract? And then how close was I, you know, as a, as a percentage, how close was I to being done? So let's say you calculate I was at 80%. Well, that would mean you get 80% of the price. And, you know, the, the, the purpose of that, you know, under the standard fixed price termination provision, termination for convenience provision, you have to get into like the allowable cost principles and you have to figure out, okay, so what were my costs? But so this is meant to kind of, you know, short circuit all that, just determine my percentage, but, you know, it, that can get a little tricky. You know, how, how do you, what goes into that? Is that a function of cost? What do you do with profit? You know, uh, how do you determine exactly what your percentage of completion was? You're also entitled under the commercial item termination for convenience provision to the reasonable charges that result from the termination. And there's actually been case law on that subject, which makes clear that, you know, to the extent that you're not being made whole by the percentage completion calculation, the purpose of that second prong is to make you whole. So the, you know, the fundamental you know, takeaway from the case law in this area is that it's supposed to you know, put the contractor, you know, be fair to the contractor and fairly compensate them for the work that they performed under their commercial item contracts prior to the termination. 
So if you run into some issues like, well, how do I calculate that percentage of completion? Well, maybe you don't have to worry about that as much because you also could recover for reasonable charges. But there, there, there's, you know, there's just a few cases in this area. Uh, hasn't not hasn't been the subject of a lot of litigation. So if you're, you know, in this, you know, and and unlike the far part 49 context, you know, far part 12 has virtually nothing. I mean, it, it does say right. a couple of things about terminations for convenience, but not a lot. So there's just not a lot of guidance and you're going to want to, you know, a bit of a commercial here. You go, you are going to want to talk to somebody, you know, a consultant or a lawyer who has some experience with these clauses as you're putting together you know, your termination settlement proposal, because, you know, even unlike, you know, FAR Part 49, you got standard forms and you can sit down and you can, you know, fill them out, blah, blah, blah. You don't have that with uh, the commercial item termination. Right. So you're kind of like, you, I mean, one thing you got to have, right, is good records. <laughs> you, you, do, well, but you do, you do, but you, you do, you do need good records because you're going, no matter, so the clause, the clause does say that, you know, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, they're, they're not supposed to like being applying CAS, you know, the cost accounting standard. Sure. They're, not, they're not supposed to be applying any of that. But of course, especially when you get to that reasonable charges piece, or even if you're, however, you're calculating the percentage of completion, you know, the government's going to want, okay, what are the records to support that calculation? You know, they're, what are the records you, you're coming after me for these reasonable charges that you say you have? Well, what's the support? that you actually incurred those. So even though you're not going to, you know, technically have to deal with FAR Part 31, you're not technically going to have to deal with the cost accounting standards. You're still going to be, you know, diving into your books and records uh, to, uh, to establish, you know, these costs and, and how you calculated those percentage of completions. Well, we got about a minute left. What, what other, you know, aspects oh. of it that you're saying? Oh, well, Afghanistan, I mean, well, the other thing is, is what if you have property over, over in Afghanistan? You know that that you've you know, you've built facilities uh, over now. That's the other thing that we're seeing. We saw this at the end of the Iraq War as well. So you have you know let's say the government has given you the right to build some facilities on a piece of land. It's not the government's land. And then what when you when, you know when the government when the military the federal U.S. federal government when the when the military when the U.S. military leaves, well what happens to that land now? Is that land now subject to the jurisdiction of the Afghan government? You know, how stable is that government? How do, you know, if, if, you know, is that government going to give me access to the property that, you know, the, the facilities that I bought that, that built, you know, those, those are the other things, you know, what if, you know, what if the value of what I've built in Afghanistan is tremendously impacted by the government, by the U.S. military leaving, you know, or is that a taking, you know, those kinds of issues are the other thing that we're seeing is what's going to happen with all the stuff uh, and who uh, that's still over in theater. Right. Well, and when we come back, I have one more question on that issue. I just want to run by, you know, just in terms of the cost associated, the actual cost associated with leaving, not just ending performance and how are those handled. Uh, my guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And last segment, we're talking about, you know, the impact of the drawdown withdrawal from Afghanistan, government contractors, just some of the practical logistic issues. We talk a lot about termination for convenience. Uh, you know, and I assume, yeah, I, you are absolutely right. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. Um, and one of the things I did want to ask you too about, um, you know, it's interesting your thoughts about the property that's there and what happens if you're 
someone who built something on a particular piece of property? What does it mean when the government's base closes and it sort of reverts back to the Afghani government or, or however it's handled? What does that mean for a contractor and trying to understand those things? But also, uh, the thing I wanted to ask you about is just generally, you know, when so people are paid to go there and set up, right? The government contractors and to provide logistic support or any other kind of support. How, how, do, how does the government and the contractor handle, you know, leaving? Who, who, who pays for that? Well, I mean, it's, it, well, <laughs> I represent contractors. And you know, <laughs> right. my, 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 my view is it's, the, it's, it's been the government's operation. It's to be the government to pay for it. And I think that there's a number of hooks for that you know, as a legal matter. So, you know, there, there's, uh, of course, if, if, you're, if you're being told, if you're saying, okay, we're terminating you early, not only, do, not only is your contract over, but here's, you know, direction to get out. Um, and if that direction is coming from the government, uh, again, as a matter of just good contract hygiene, uh, you would, if you're the contractor, you want to get that direction coming from the contracting officer. Uh, because even though you're in theater, even though it's a war zone, you know, even if it's the general in charge that's telling you leave tomorrow, if that, if that general does not have a contracting officer's warrant, uh, there could be a question uh, about whether they have the contractual authority to give you that direction. So you're going to, even though it's difficult, we saw this a lot in Iraq, uh, you're still going to want to try to tie that back to direction from the contracting officer. And if it's direction that comes from the contracting officer, you should be able to recover it under a changes. You know, either either it's a cost that is resulting from the termination. So you can recover it under, you know, let's say it's the commercial item clause, commercial, the termination clause. You recover that as a you know, reasonable charge resulting from the termination. Or you could, if it's not, even if it's not that, I think you'd have a good, you know, you'd have a good argument. Look, that's been a change to the contract that was not, uh, you know, yes, okay, the contract officer has the authority to tell us to do that. But, you know, if, 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 if that wasn't covered in the original pricing, we're entitled uh, you know, to a, a price adjustment uh, to cover that additional expense. Uh, you know, it's that, that, that I think you'd be in a, you should be in a good position uh, with those kind of facts. Right. So that's, that's, okay. That's the last question of Afghanistan. Sure. So let's, sure. let's turn to a, a, another, uh, you know, government contracting topic. And I, I just wanted to, it's a good opportunity to talk about compliance in the context of uh, the GSA schedules program. And I know that's an area where you've done a lot of work, you know, sure. involving the price reduction clause, yeah. commercial sales practices, disclosures, and that yeah. sort of thing. And right now, what, what are you seeing in terms of like the biggest sort of compliance issue that contractors and GSA are focusing on? Well, I mean, with, with, if you're, if you're looking at, if we're talking just about the schedules, I would say that, you know, the continuing, you know, once upon a time, I would have said that, you know, CSP, commercial sales practices, disclosures, price reductions, clause compliance, uh, I would have said were, you know, no question, those were far and away at the top of compliance issues. And I would still say for those who are on schedule under that system uh, with the CSP, PRC, uh, um, you know, that is still... When I look at risk areas with the schedules, that I still put that as as number one, if if that's the way you're if that's the way you're priced. Of course, you know as, as we've talked many times, Roger. You know there is this whole you know new way of pricing schedule contracts, you know transactional data reporting, uh, which that you know in my opinion. 
from a compliance perspective has, has really had, you know, that has had a huge impact, I think, over the last several years. Uh, you know, uh, as I think we've talked about on this show before, you know, that we, we know the, the IG, uh, the GSA IG was not and is not uh, a fan of transactional data reporting. And I, you know, I do think a part of, part of that at least is it does, it reduces, it just reduces significantly what the IG has to audit uh, when they come in to, to do uh, a pre-award, uh, especially pre-award uh, audits uh, under the schedule. So, you know, I, but again, for those who are still on CSP PRCs, I'd still say that's number one. And then, of course, Trade Agreements Act stuff, you know, remains a perennial uh, compliance issue uh, for schedule contractors. And, you know, it with, you know it's been interesting because, you know, I think there were some folks who, who believed that, you know, with the change in administration, we would see, you know, something vastly different on kind of the, you know, the uh, domestic preferences, trade agreements, front of things. And what's been interesting on, on that subject is that the, the new administration, uh, you know, I mean, Joe Biden, before he was, I think this was even before he was elected, was saying, you know, we are going to have, we're going to buy everything. We're going to buy everything in America, uh, which, of course, that's never, <laughs> that's actually never been the rule. That's not, that's, and it's, you know, the, the buy, when you hear buy America, you know, what, you know, what folks should keep in mind, but the, there is an act called the Buy America Act, but it's merely establishes a price preference for, for American made products. Nobody has yet suggested changing that, but, you know, but how, but Buy America Trade Agreements Act, where stuff is made, you know, that all remains a subject of a lot of concern. And it wraps into another topic, you know, that uh, Roger, that you and I have talked about a number of times, and that's 889. So, you know, all of this stuff, all of these issues of supply chain risk, you know, whether you're talking that, you know, I, this, this is true of the schedules through the TAA stuff, you know, 889 applies to schedule purchases. There's no exemption for, you know, the schedules program for, for schedules. For, yeah. No, yeah, there's no exemption. So all, you know, for the you know, folks not familiar with what I mean by 889, it's this prohibition that Congress enacted a couple of years ago in a National Defense Authorization Act that prohibits the government from even at this point, even doing business, contracting with companies, entities that use certain Chinese telecommunications equipment. So that, you know, all of that supply chain stuff and concern over where stuff is coming from that the government's purchasing or that, you know, any you know, a company is using that does work for the government, all of that stuff, I think is going to remain kind of front and center uh, for the foreseeable future. And again, that's kind of regardless of, you know, that we've had a change in administration. I don't think that is going to change. So kind of looking broadly across government contracts, I would say supply chain uh, risk management is the number one compliance issue. That and cybersecurity. Right. Those two things, I think, you know, I, again, once upon a time, I would have said, if you're talking the schedules, it's all about pricing, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's still out there. Don't get lax in your uh, CSP disclosures. But where the enforcement community really is, I think, is 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 domestic preferences and sourcing issues. Uh, those are just you know, we I don't, I don't think there's a week goes by that we don't get a question. Uh, right, I think you're issues. yeah. To your also point, you mentioned cyber. That's going to be. I mean, that and that that's you know going to be a huge. It already is. You know, with solar winds. You know. And, yeah. Um, and the recent and the you know the the you know beef supply or the you know, 
meat packaging you know company as well just your ability to comply with government requirements is going to create compliance issues and you know and eventually you're sort of you're certifying to provide you know to meeting those requirements and if something happens you're not just potentially in trouble for you know a breach but you also could even have civil false claims act um potential liability down the road theoretically in that area and when we come back we'll talk about that a little bit more okay jason sure and we'll unpack some of those other issues um as well just uh yeah i want to get a couple other quick thoughts on tdr as well sure um my guest today is jason workmaster from miller chevalier i'm roger waldron and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network welcome back to off the shelf on federal news network my guest today is jason workmaster from miller chevalier and you know, uh, we've been talking a little bit about compliance in the schedules context, but, you, you know, Jason, you know, you rightly expanded it to, you know, these are sort of global, global or cross-cutting uh, government com- contracts, compliance issues, uh, you know, that the schedules, that impact the schedule as well, whether it's cybersecurity, TAA issues, uh, supply chain issues. Um, so just in the, in the context of cyber, um, uh, just you know, the, the challenges there are, are multifold, whether, you know, there's a compliance piece, but also, you know, just how, how well you comply can lead to issues of whether or not you get yourself not only a breach, but also from a government perspective, uh, Civil Fault Claims Act, you know, you're, where there's going to be CMMC, you're going to be making certifications, you know, as part of your contract or, you know, or your proposal submission. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Well, we've already seen, I mean, it's, it's within, within, I want to say the last year, 18 months, we've already seen, you know, one of the first, you know, false claims act cases based on, you know, cyber issues. Uh, You know, and I I think what we're going to, I think we're going to keep seeing that. And, uh, you know, for, for listeners who've listened to Roger, me talk about this before, uh, you know, the civil false claims act is, is this statute that gives the government the right to the ability to pursue, not, not only the government also, key TAM whistleblower uh, private parties to bring actions in the name of the government that allege fraud. Uh, and they, you know, they can, government recovers treble damages plus civil penalties that, you know, the dollars we're going to be talking about here can be very significant. And, you know, with this cybersecurity uh, stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the issue would come down to, as, as you said, Roger, I mean, there's all kinds of you know, certifications that, you know, contractors being asked to make. And, you know, when you're a lawyer, if you're, if you're a government lawyer, a, Tamra later spoiler. I mean, you love those certifications because you just pull them out. You put them up in front of the jury. It's like you checked the box that said I complied with all the cyber. Look, there it is. There's the check mark. It says, you know, yes, I comply with all of the cybersecurity rules. And then all oh, lo and behold, there was this massive data breach. Uh, and it resulted in the release of all this sensitive information, result, you know, causing the dam- you know, government tremendous amounts of damage. And that was all a lie. And I mean, that's that, that's the kind of thing that we're, you know, we can expect to see more of. And there was, you know, as I said, there was a case out in California not too terribly long ago based on kind of that notion. Uh, and the contractor argued that, look, you know, that wasn't really a material provision. And uh, and the court just, the court swatted it down. The court, the court said, nope, 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 this stuff is important. This stuff's material. So we're going to let the False Claims Act case uh, proceed forward. And I think, I think we're just, I think we will continue to see to see more of that and on the, you know, the kind of the commercial item stuff, you know, 
you know, I, I do, it, it is a bit of a feeling of the world's been turned upside down because, you know, we've thought about for so long, we thought, you know, commercial item contracts, well, you're exempt from stuff, you know, the compliance right. burden is less, but like, you know, when we're talking about cyber and we're talking about domestics, you know, the sourcing preferences and all that kind of stuff, those issues are actually a lot more complex and difficult now for commercial item contractors than they are for your traditional government contract for traditional government contracts where you're just building to a government spec. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're just, you know, you're building a missile system or whatever it is you're doing. You know, it's not, it's not commercial work and you're building is everything's bespoke. You know, you're building everything kind of from scratch. That is a lot from on, on this stuff we're talking about now, that's a lot less risky than when you're going out and you're buying components, commercial item components from all over the place and, you know, putting them together and, and, you know, the concern, the 889 concerns and all these other uh, cyber concerns, et cetera, that's a lot more complicated uh, and I think I feel like, you know, my sense is, you know, on this kind of stuff, it's the commercial item contractors that are really more in the sweet spot of, you know, where the enforcement community has concern than in your more traditional pure government contractors. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. And I just I think about it, too, that that just all the concern, whether it's in the private sector, you know, transactions and then government contracts transactions, this focus on, you know, cybersecurity and what it means fundamentally, you know, to be able to transact business. It's, do you see sort of the standards or the approach, you know, between the private sector and the government, you know, coming closer together or, or do you I think see... it's almost going to have to, I think it's, it's going to be finan- It's going to be financially to ruin us. Uh, if, to maintain kind of two separate standards, I mean, or, or else we're going to have a, a you know a government contract government contracting base that is completely separate and apart from our commercial industry, our commercial industry base. Which I don't, you know, that that would be a uh, uh, that would completely you know turn on its head everything that's been happening in government contracts for the last. 30 years. So I, I don't, 30 years plus, I don't see that happening. I, I, I see there, there's going to have to be some, you know, co- I don't know if it's a compromise or industry in this country will kind of drift in the direction of what the government wants more, but that, that's going to, or the government will force, right. Or the government will force it. Yeah. Or, or the, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we're all in this together. Right. So, I mean, and talking about greater government industry cooperation in any event. Um, so you could see, see these things becoming, you know, you, these requirements ubiquitous across the entire economy in a certain sense. You right? can. Well, and, and if you look at the, you know, again, all of these, all of these things we're talking about, I mean, these flow down through the supply chain. So, you know, where we're going to see that, I think where we're first going to see all this, all, all of these issues popping up is in those prime sub, you know, negotiations as you go, you know, first, second, third tier subs, as you're going down the supply chain, you know, and you're, you're getting further and further away from the government. But, you know, a lot of these clauses we're talking about, they have no limitation on how far down they reach. So, I mean, it, it, you know, and that, that's, where we, that's where the rubber is, I think, really going to hit the road. And it's, you know, it's, it's tough, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you include kind of that level uh, of uh, contractor as subject to the compliance, you know, it does become a question, well, how, how, how many companies are there in this country that are not somewhere down that chain? Uh, and the government will use, I think the government will first use that chain because I don't think the government's preference is going to be to pass legislation just kind of across the board 
these are the new cyber requirements for everybody, regardless of whether you do business with the government or not. I don't think that's what they're going to, that, that, that's certainly not where they're going to start. They're going to work their way down their, their chains. Right. Yeah. And, and even just the moral story, there's, this is going to be a big investment area for all companies, you know, in performance yep. of, of government work, but, you know, in, but performance and work period. Probably. So, yeah, we got a couple minutes left. And I just, I, I mean, I would be remiss. It's almost like a, you know, a moth to a candle or a flame, <laughs> right? Whatever, whatever that saying is to talk about, get back to like, schedules and pricing issues and a TDR versus uh, PRC, yeah. CSP, you know, the GSA just recently issued a report talking about the pilot with TDR and saying it was overall successful in terms of creating greater value for customer agencies and in the context of price and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and then basically saying, therefore, it's a candidate to be expanded and I believe the Federal Acquisition Service has to work on the, you know, the next steps and what yep. the policy looks like. Um, do you have any thoughts on that as we close out the show? I mean, first thought is I think that is actually going to happen. I think that will happen. Uh, so I think we're going to see TDR continue to expand. Uh, I think we will see it continue to expand over the strenuous objection of the IG. Uh, I think once we, we uh, you know, here, I think the IG is going to have some uh, uh, criticisms uh, of that report you mentioned. Um, uh, that would be my guess. Uh, but I think that, re, you know, and, and, but I think that regardless uh, of that, uh, regardless of the, you know, the, the shots they're going to take, because uh, what I think, uh, what I think we're going to hear as well, you know, this data that supports these conclusions, if you dig into it, it doesn't really support the conclusion that the program is success. I, I just don't think that's going to go anywhere because I, I, I do think there is uh, a lot of uh, both in, on the industry side now and within, you know, the business with the business folks at GSA, uh, just a, a commitment to this. Uh, and, you know, the, the data uh, that was in that report, uh, you know, does, you know, on its face, at least it does suggest that uh, the government's the, the pricing the government is ultimately getting under TDR contracts is as good, if not better than the pricing it's getting under uh, traditionally priced to schedule. Right. And if that's it, the case, uh, it's not much the GS, there's much uh, the IG can be upset about that, but with, with, with how the data was, you know, wh how the data was generated, what the data is, but I, I just, I don't think that's going to change anybody's minds. Yeah. And the bigger picture too, it is a sort of a government approach, right? These days, when you talk about best in class contracting, one of the fundamental, you know, you know, I guess, uh, characteristics of a best and class contract is, you know, data reporting. So, you know, to the extent GSA is moving that direction, how can you argue with moving towards something that the government thinks is very, very important, you know, and, um, and, uh, and so you combine that with the report results of the GSA report. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the next steps are and what it looks like. And, Jason, I'll be sure to have you back to talk about that. Excellent. All right. So I want to thank my guest today, Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.